Here we go. Hey there, folks. This is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, my friend and co-host, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how are you doing today on Monday? All right. Monday. Can't complain. It is Monday, also known as Friday Eve, 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 Eve. <laughs> Go with that. Go with that. <laughs> oh, I wish it was Friday. Um, <laughs> we, we have an awesome show for you today. Um, our, our guest, he's the co-founder, chief risk scientist, Mr. Jack Jones. And no, he's not the country singer Jack Jones, but he is a handsome man himself. He's from Risk Lens. Jack, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. Awesome. We're really excited to have you on the show. I know that uh, you and Gabe go a little ways back, but if you want to kind of give uh, give our listeners a little bit of, just tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to Risk Lens or how you started. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I started in technology back in the early 80s in mainframe computers, of all things. And, and punch cards were still a thing then, believe it or not. Um, and uh, then went into programming. And when viruses raised their ugly little heads, I was working at a bank and they said, there's this new thing called a computer virus and we need somebody to be responsible for it. And I said, well, I think that sounds interesting. And that's how I got my foothold into security and and uh, my my background in assembly language programming um, served me well in the in the early virus wars, so to speak. And then I spent some time in uh, government intelligence, and from there went into um, consulting and attack and penetration work, and was um, then became CISO for nationwide insurance for almost six years and then went on to another CISO role and then did some more consulting and then another CISO role. And then um, by that time I'd been using FAIR for about a decade, developing and using it for about a decade. I'd started working on it in 2001 and, um, and people have been telling me, man, you need to make a business out of this. So I, being the world's worst businessman, I, I had to partner with someone who had a clue. So I partnered with an old friend of mine who, who had uh, started up a successful, started up and sold a successful business. And he and I uh, started up um, what is now called Risk Lens. At the time, it was we didn't couldn't think of a good name for it, so we we used something called CXOware. That was the name of it, <clears throat> and. Uh, we, we knew we needed to change the name when, when someone pronounced it Sexoware. It's called Sex Panther by Odeon. <laughs> it's illegal in nine countries. So that's nothing wrong with that, but yeah. <laughs> Be uh, problematic, yeah. Yeah, so the last eight years have been spent um, working with uh, Risk Lens and, and the Fair Institute, which we started five years ago, I think now. So, Jack, that... That's a good segue right into, I think, the, the first obvious question for our listeners is, what is FAIR? The Factor Analysis of Information Risk. Please tell them what it is. Those that have tuned into the show, listened carefully and have taken notes, may have heard me mention it a few times on the show. And so it got to the point where one day after uh, an episode, I said, you know, I need to just call Jack up and have him come on the show and let's let's talk about it because because it, it, there's there's a lot of it's a lot of really good application in in the world in our world in the infosec and privacy space. So please go ahead and introduce folks to to Fair if they're not familiar. So be it, Jedi. Sure, and, and if it's all right, I'd like to start with sort of the the background for why I created it. So yeah, I think that's very important. When I was a brand new CISO at Nationwide Insurance, you know, I was a, a good, competent security professional. You know, I had done my attack and penetration work and that sort of thing, and consulting. Um, but uh, 
you know, as a new CISO, one of the first things you have to do is put together a strategy and then go beg for money. And I went on my dog and pony show to management and one of them listened to my spiel and said, so tell me, Jack, how much risk do we have? And I was prepared to talk about threats and vulnerabilities, but he, he said, how much risk do we have? And I thought for a moment and then I shrugged and I said, lots. And he, spent, he said, if we spend these millions of dollars you're asking for, how much less risk will we have? And I, I kind of hung my head and kicked the floor and said, well, less. <laughs> and he knew he wasn't going to get a better answer. It was a teaching moment. He was he was telling me in his own way that until I could speak in those terms, I was just really expensive noise as far as he was concerned. So I took the lesson to heart. because, And it was those were reasonable questions. I should be able to answer those questions. I mean, they are literally spending millions of dollars on what I was asking for. And as far as they knew, it was, you know, for, for booze and pizza. So... Um, I spent the next year researching all the quote unquote risk measurement approaches in our profession, most of which fundamentally haven't changed in the two decades since. And uh, none of them held water. None of them allowed me to answer those questions in any sort of meaningful and defensible way. So I thought, well, it can't be an intractable problem. And so I dug into it and I began essentially decomposing risk into the factors that drive it, this name factor analysis of information risk. And it, was, it, it started out as a Bayesian decomposition of those factors. And, uh, and very early on in the process, I mean, even before I got to the point of being able to quantify anything, just that decomposition and, and getting clarity about sort of the structure of risk and how it works was incredibly empowering for me, both in terms of my own thinking through the complex problems that we face but also my ability to communicate with others and have more productive you know, conversations and debates. Um, I was able to, by training up my, my staff at Nationwide and applying fair principles, again, very qualitatively and, and crudely even, we were able to reduce by an order of magnitude the number of quote unquote high risk issues in the organization simply by being able to filter out the noise. You know, the stuff that somebody had labeled quote unquote high risk that, that when you really looked at it, there was no way. So, the, you know, an order of magnitude reduction like that really allowed us to do a couple of things that were important. One is focus on the things that mattered most. And two, gain better credibility with the executive stakeholders because we could explain and defend our conclusions in a very different way. And we didn't go to them with our hair on fire nearly as often because again, we were filtering out noise. And, and so when we did go to them, they took us far more seriously because they knew we'd done our homework. You said a lot of things in there that I think is really worthy of unpacking, but I want to start in a place that's really kind of a pet peeve of mine and, and maybe a little bit of a religious slant for me. Um, I've talked in the past before on a number of platforms about my perception of our quote unquote uh, cybersecurity skill shortage and how it's not really a skill shortage. Part of that is is in the way we empower those people to do their jobs. And and you touch on expressing risk. Your Your story up front is a beautiful one, right? It's like, so how much risk is that? And most people will go right to, well, it's 100 vulnerabilities. Sure. But what does that mean? But what you also touched on there was a lot of the ways that risk is expressed in technology still is in a lot of, you know, red, yellow, green. It's not as bad as it was maybe five years ago, definitely not 10 years ago. Right. Especially with the the entrance of ML and AI into technologies, folks are trying to to at least express, and I'm being very careful about my words here, not quantify, but at least express that risk differently, you know, moving past that red, yellow, green. But that red, yellow, green, I think, is equally what led to a lot of this perceived cybersecurity skill shortage. Well, there's a thousand issues to go chase, and you're telling me that some of them are a dark amber color and some are bright green. Like, so what do I do? Right. And so what you end up with is not enough people to mm-hmm. go chasing all of these, these little colored dots, like, like cats whacking at, at the floor. Um, and so quantifying risk, even understanding before you get to quantifying it, let's back up to that understanding it. Because again, I think security professionals get into, to uh, a very 
myopic view of risk. And we oftentimes don't break it down to those parts like you did or talk about it in in the way we resolve it in terms of mitigating it, transferring it, or accepting it. Security tends to simply fall on the, mostly on the mitigation, largely on just let's mitigate the risk. Um, and then you've got some, some uh, you've got some fools out there who think they can eliminate risk, but we won't talk about those guys <laughs> in this call. <laughs> Is eliminating is notice it wasn't on my option of three things. Um, I promise I will get to a question. Um, but that transfer and acceptance, a lot of risk gets transferred these days to 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 cyber insurance, and the rates are astronomical for reasons we can go into in another show. Part of that is because they don't know how to quantify it either, though. Yeah. Largely, yeah. I, in fact, we can go on it in this show if we want to talk a bit about the insurance industry and its intersections. But that acceptance of risk, I do want to talk about. I definitely mm-hmm. want to talk about the acceptance of risk because we make lots of acceptances for risk every day in, in the, the businesses around us. And uh, and in the InfoSec world, we accept a lot of risk without being able to answer that specific question that you were once asked. So kind of what's your advice to not just leveraging FAIR, but to, to accepting risk without being able to quantify it? Well, great question. So it isn't absolutely necessary all the time to quantify risk. I mean, there are plenty of times where I will evaluate sort of triage risk, if you will, and and not quantify it in order to because maybe time constraints or just the the nature of the problem doesn't warrant it. Those sorts of things, and and I'm really just essentially trying to categorize it more effectively, you know, put it in the right bucket, yeah. and and that sort of crude categorization or triaging is really useful. I like to think of it as risk landscape clarification. Again, you're filtering out noise and there's so much noise in our in our industry. And I think which gets to the point you started with there around the personnel shortage. You know, if we really as a profession were good at measuring our problem space and, and prioritizing it, would we still have a personnel shortage? Probably, but would it be as dire? I don't think so. I agree. Your point. Um, and, and furthermore, I would argue that in some organizations, at least in in some industries, having that better intelligence about their risk landscape would garner more resources, right? In some cases that wouldn't be true, but in others it, it would. So, um, so the bottom line is, is, you know, just, being able to understand and think more clearly about the problem space, that on its on its own can make a huge difference. But then there are all sorts of you know knock-on positive effects that uh, that come about as well. I'll go ahead and jump in here. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I, I catch myself just like kind of taken in what you guys go into. It's uh, it's nice because I don't have as much knowledge as the both of you, but um, I, so I have a lot of questions, but let's just start with, let's, let's go back to risk lens mm. and the foundation of it. Are we talking, um, what, what's the, what's the main goal for risk lens when it comes to uh, your, your customers and, and what you're, we're trying to help our customers make better informed risk management decisions, you know, being able to more cost effectively manage their cyber technology and privacy risk landscape. Um, you know, so we're so talking kind of like a, a risk assessment it's, at it's a high a level intelligence tool, right. if you will, or a platform. And um, I think is maybe the best way to describe it. It's uh it's, it's an ability to, to redefine your risk landscape in a more organized and logical and structured way. And because of that structure and the FAIR model, you can do the kinds of analyses that allow you to do you know, cost-benefit analysis on improvements, let's say, um, that you couldn't do otherwise. Or like this last year, we had a number of CISOs come to us saying, I'm being told I have to cut my budget and I don't know what I can safely cut. <laughs> so, so is that where you guys kind of become advisors to them in a way? 
Yeah, I mean, we we view ourselves as a software company. We have a, a very strong professional services group, primarily because there are so few people in our industry who who have any background or experience in this. That's that's one of the big challenges uh, we face as a business. Is this is all new, and and industries and many people don't welcome change, <laughs> and no. uh, and. Especially if it challenges conventional wisdom, which we do on a regular basis. Um, so, so we have to have a strong professional services group. Now, the good news is we now have some very strong partners from a consulting perspective, like Protivity and, and IBM. Sure. That, uh, that are, are shameless plug. Off of us. That's. I mean. That's you know it's super interesting because of the way things, and you're you're mainly talking about privacy as a whole and how it's kind of taken over. That's has that changed the game for you guys in the last couple of years or at least this last year? No, not so much yet. Um, the the challenge so far, and this is my perception. I don't claim to be an expert in the privacy space, but. Um, so far, many people treat privacy as a box checking exercise um, rather than what I would argue is true of, of it or security, which is informed trade-offs, right? We have to, you know, we can't do everything. We can't certainly do everything all at once. So we have to prioritize. We have to make these choices and trade-offs. Any, any organization, any business does because resources are limited. So, you know, until the privacy space, which includes regulations, um, gets a little further down the road from a, um, from a focus on, on measuring the risk associated with privacy related concerns, then it really hasn't affected us the way I, I hope it will eventually. Right, because it's a huge, important problem space that I think we can contribute to, but we don't see a lot of sort of privacy-focused um, professionals turning to us. There are some, and there it's it's more than it used to be, but it's still yeah. uh, what how, I would consider hot. How would how would you say COVID has changed your risk landscape? Well, um, as a business, it has it has been a blessing and a curse. <laughs> so, as I said, a lot of CISOs are having harder budget-related conversations with their CFOs. You know, conversations much more like the one that I had, you know, 20 years ago that kicked fair off. Um, we're seeing a lot more of that where boards and uh, the executive levels are, are going, boy, we spent a lot of money there. What are we getting for this? So that's a good thing. During the heat of, of the lockdown and, and sort of the economic uncertainties that surrounded it, we had a lot of, as a business, a lot of deals put on hold because, you know, businesses just weren't sure what was going on. Now, the good news is that is, picked up dramatically in the last quarter. Um, so we'd like to think, you know, fingers crossed, that, um, you know, the new normal has, has, has settled in a little bit economically and, and from a business perspective. And, and again, because those conversations regarding expenditures are still fresh in people's minds, uh, they are they're turning to us for, for answers more often. So we're going to uh, probably going to release this episode right before data privacy day. Uh, this will be the data privacy day episode. And I'm going to take that opportunity also to talk a little bit about uh, I, caveat, of course. Yes. You, you mentioned you're not a data privacy expert and, and that's true, but, but you certainly are. You certainly are an expert, a number of, of, things that I think qualify, namely raising awareness. And what and what would you bring awareness to, um, you know, on Data Privacy Day with regards to the risk landscape and how it's changed, not just for you, but just in general? What requires a bit more awareness in your opinion? 
Well, um, the what I would characterize as the deficiencies, maybe deficiencies isn't exactly the right word, but let's run with it. Um, deficiencies in how our profession, both security and privacy, uh, approach prioritization and measurement. Um, it's it's just. I still hear far too often comments about, well, you know, what we've been doing has been working so far. <laughs> like, yeah, give me any evidence that supports that. I mean, even even one piece of evidence that supports that. <laughs> and, and it's it's and here's here's um, an analogy that's it's going to perhaps ruffle some feathers, but but I I, I don't bring it up to ruffle feathers, but it, I think it's it's apropos. And that is, um, you know, if, if you were to ask uh, physicians of the 17th century um, what best practice was, was bloodletting. Right. Right. And, and they had well-developed best practices around that. And, and, and you could go to school for that. And, and, you know, if they had such thing as certifications, I'm sure there would be certifications in bloodletting, you know. And um, you know, everybody, you know, the best minds all believed that that was, you know, good medicine. We know now <laughs> that it wasn't. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I believe much of what we do as a profession from a measurement and decision-making perspective is similar in the sense that we're running almost entirely from intuition. And, and there's very little deeper understanding of how things actually work from, a, from the perspective of control efficacy. I mean, ask, you know, if, if, if you feel like, and I wouldn't encourage you to do this on the show, um, but, but if you had a- Now we're CISO, definitely going to do it. <laughs> you're talking to a CISO. Well, do it on a show if you have a CISO on there you don't like. Okay, <laughs> so, so um, ask them two questions. Ask them, the first question is, what's the most valuable control uh, that you've implemented where you work, you know, in your program? And, and you may get an answer, but it'll be driven entirely by their gut. There will be, I guarantee, there will be no analytic rigorous basis for it. It'll be kind of, it might be policy or it might be patching. It'll be, you know, something like that. Yeah. But there'll be, you know, there'll be no understanding under, underneath it. Um, and, and then ask them the harder question. And that is, well, what's the least valuable control? And you're almost certain in my experience, because I've done this a few times in private, you know, to not embarrass anybody. And it's a deer in the headlights look. They have no answer for that. Okay, and if if we were mature as a profession, and truly understanding our problem space and being able to measure and and and, and make trade offs and, and these sorts of things, we'd be able to answer those questions. You know, and you you know we we have our we have our checklist frameworks. You know, we have our NIST CSFs and our ISO whatevers and P, PCI DSS and and whatnot, and as checklists. They're great, but they're checklists. They have no analytic basis at all. And in fact, can be dangerous when you try to translate them into something analytic because it's a very square peg round hole thing. We could spend a whole nother session on that. Mm-hmm. But, but um, you know, that's, that's as, as deep as we understand our controls in these checklists and, and um, I've been focusing on controls analytics for two years now, and this year we'll be publishing a, a controls analytics model or framework through the Fair Institute. And you know, in those two years, I've learned how utterly clueless I've been as a professional for multiple decades when it comes to understanding how controls actually work. And and it's. Um, you know, and, and this isn't meant as a criticism of our profession. I know it probably sounds like it and feels like it, but it's not my intent. It's, you know, every profession, our profession is young. 
It really is. And, and we have a profoundly complex problem space. And so, you know, we are where we are. And, and the good news is, you know, you and I and, and the others who are working in this profession right now have this amazing opportunity to take the profession to the next level. Um, if, if we're willing to, uh, if we're willing to do that, if we're willing to look our, at ourselves honestly and say, uh, boy, we need to do better. You know, we need to understand this more deeply and, 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 and treat it more as a science than a craft. Um, and, uh, so that was a long answer. Fortunately, some people don't believe in science, but that's a whole other episode. (laughs) People will not be allowed on the show. (laughs) I I appreciate that answer, and I appreciate you, Jack, in so many ways because the uh, the ability to criticize ourselves individually and our industry, I think, is is what will make us strong. And and it's nice to not be the only one out there always kind of throwing stones. And I say it every time I criticize you. Like I, I'm talking about myself too. I, as a technologist and someone who creates technology, when I say that part of the problem is the way we express it through technology, I'm I'm putting that finger, you know, right back to we we collectively have to do better. And I think that uh, I think it's necessary to to level that type of criticism. I think any CISO should want to answer that challenge of answering those two questions that you asked. They should want to. They should not receive those two questions and uh, and <laughs> and respond with pitchforks. But you're right. It I could see that. But they do. doing that. They do. Yeah, I've had two conversations in the last week with um, ex- security executives in large firms who had a visceral sort of negative angry reaction to the whole idea that that we are in any way other than outstanding at what we do from an analytics perspective and, and, and controls. And one of them, one of them, uh, when I called the common control frameworks checklist, he got pissed. <laughs> and and he says, there are checklists. I hate it when people call them checklists. If if your organization embodies them, you know, then it's not a checklist. I said, how an organization adopts something or or approaches something has nothing to do with the fundamental nature of whatever that something is, right? right. It's a checklist. Now you can certainly, you know, connect with it emotionally or whatever, <laughs> any way you like, right? And and and, and embody it. But that doesn't change the fact that it is a list of what are considered to be good controls. And, and again, checklists have have real value, but they have real limitations. And that's all I'm pointing out is if we want to really be effective at, at managing our, our increasingly complex problem space, we have to do better than checklists. We just have to. Uh, so that you said something that's going on in the quotables book, right? Uh, go ahead and, and get emotionally connected with the CMMC that that one's going on the, the quotable wall. Just, just so we're clear, go ahead and get yourself emotionally, uh, comfortable there with the CMMC. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Let's, let's get a little uncomfortable. So Alistair Kroll, Ben Yoskovitz, names sound familiar. Um, the gentleman behind the uh, Lean Analytics book, if you're not familiar, uh, famous for the the one metric that matters. I don't know if you've, you've heard of that also, right? Yeah. Um, so where do you come down on the side of one metric that matters? One metric that matters? Well, um, you know, before I got really focused on controls analytics stuff, I would have, I would have said, well, it's, it's your loss exposure metric, your, how much risk you have, right? Um, but I think that is a little bit, not a little bit, it's, it's, it's uh, misleading. And I, I don't think I could operate from that as a, as a CISO and be successful. Um, the, and I'm going to disappoint you um, by not answering with one metric. But with two, and and these are um, 
And, and understanding why these are the ones I choose, again, would take a lot more time than we have today. But it is the frequency and duration of variant control conditions. Um, because that has profound downstream effects in terms of your loss exposure, but it also is incredibly useful from a root cause analysis perspective. So, um, so again, that's, you know, without a lot more explanation that may not be all that meaningful, but there you go. Solid answer. And uh, I will say that the one metric that matters gets, it does get a bit of flack uh, out there. And there is also, there's also the two metric that matters. <laughs> Gentleman by the name of uh, Paul Graham talks a bit about the two metrics that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of more in your camp. There's what the, the one metric that matters is uh, I think the name is meant to be a bit controversial and, you know, you obviously can't run a business on just one metric. No, mm-hmm. no one actually believes that, but the sentiment of it is to have that one metric kind of, held as the thing that matters most more than anything else. Hmm. So this is a question that we like to ask, not all of our guests, but most. And it would be interesting to get your take on it. So if let's just say you have a very, very low budget (laughs) of $100 (laughs) to spend on security and privacy. Where, where do you think the, the first place you would start would be? Well, let me ask you a question before I answer your question. That is, am I just starting out in this role as where, you know, I'm faced with this situation or am, am I not just starting out? I am where I am and it's based on current state. I, I think either that one or let's say you've been in the industry, but you just took on a new uh, you just joined a new company in that position to make I, that. Call. I would, yeah. If if I were, had just joined a new company, the first thing I want to do is essentially a, a series of, of fair triage analysis to give me a high level understanding of where the most risk is. You know, what what part of my risk landscape is is hottest and, and coolest, and you know that can be done. I don't know about for a hundred bucks, <laughs> but it can be done really inexpensively and very quickly. And, you know, it, it can enable you to identify uh, what the organization's top risks are, which I will add in the, um, in the last three years, I've, I've been in a number of organizations who, who have gone through the exercise of identifying their top risks, but they haven't done it using FAIR. They, you know, what happens almost invariably is, um, a consultant comes in and does a, a you know an audit or something like that. But more often, the security team gets into a room for a week and argues for a week and throws stuff on the wall, and then the loudest voices uh, or highest ranks win in those debates, and they come up with a list of things, that, ten things that they're most concerned about. Now, when these organizations have asked us to come in and look at their list of top ten risks. Not once was was their list in any of these organizations even close to what their actual top risks were. Not once, um, because again, there's it's not based on any sort of analysis. It's just a bunch of opinion and intuition, and fear and bias and and, and myth and dogma and whatnot, and and so. You know, when organizations, if, if that's prevailing situation in organizations, and I can't imagine, based on my evidence, why that's not the prevailing uh, condition, it's, it's no wonder that the bad guys keep eating our lunch. And so stepping into a new role, I want to not be in that position as soon as possible. Good answer. Also accepted would be 100 on black. Yeah, the judges will accept. I'm I'm surprised. I was thinking about it when you were talking, and I was like, I'm surprised nobody's ever said, "Well, maybe I'll just go to 
see if I can get some more money at the at the casino. Why not? <laughs> and then put it in. <laughs> decided that would be bad. I'm a horrible. Go, it could go downward really quickly there. The thing about gambling, Jack, is everyone's a horrible gambler. Some people are just luckier than others. But <laughs> <laughs> sticking in that, in, I piggybacking on the conversation real quick because I want to give our our listeners something concrete they to walk away with. You you said you could perform this exercise for relatively inexpensive in relatively short period of time, um, without overindulging, or you know, we can point them to some other resources in the show notes. What what do they do to start? Do they go around the organization and start collecting what data? Like if they were to go around the room, like what are they asking for from, from those people at the table to start? What are the loss event scenarios that your, your organization, based on the industry you're in, you know, the kind of data you handle, the kind of services you provide, and those sorts of things, what are the loss event scenarios that are meaningful to your organization? You know, just at a high level. Then from there, you begin to break that down into the different ways in which those events can materialize, right? Outages can occur due to natural disaster, human error, technology failure, or bad actors, whatever, right? So you you start by what are these, at a high level, what are these loss event scenarios that that could be really meaningful uh, to the organization? Then let's go down a couple layers of abstraction, parsing those out into more specific, discrete scenarios. And then you do these triage fair analyses on these things. And it's, it's, um, it's not rocket science. And, and you don't have to spend weeks or months, you know, going after a bunch of data. Again, this is triage. Yeah. Um, you, you, you save the, the deep data dives for the things that bubble up to the surface once you've gone through this, right? right. If once you need to express how much loss exposure one risk or another represents to the organization, or you need to talk about cost benefit analysis on improvements. That's when you get into the details around uh, deeper dives on data, but you can cover so much ground very quickly long before you have to wrestle the data monsters. Right. Right. You you mentioned something else in there that I know my customers struggle with is you mentioned, you know, the data they handle. A lot of them kind of know generally like, ah, oh, we collect PII, but they really do struggle to know like what and where. <laughs> so that's, uh, and, and again, you, you know, some of these things are just fundamentals. Everyone's quick to run to the next blink and lights AI thing. And uh, yeah. just jumping over so much fundamentals, just so many fundamentals. Yeah, and that's a great point. And, and we hear a lot of people who say, well, we don't even know where all our data is, so we can't do something like FAIR. And that, I'm sorry, that's ridiculous and doesn't stand up on the face of it because you know what you know. And, and undoubtedly, there's there are things you don't know about your risk landscape, but at, at least make decent decisions about what you do know, right? right? right. If you're waiting for perfect data or quote unquote enough data, then, you know, you and, you know, we're all going to die of old age before that happens. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's unfortunate that misperception exists, but if I were, if, if I were to step into a CISO role today, I would have a position on my staff. Again, if I had, it was a big enough organization, but even if it wasn't a big organization and I couldn't dedicate someone full-time to the role, somebody would have the responsibility as, as what I would refer to as asset czar. I mean, this person, their responsibility is for knowing what, what we know and going after what we don't know, right? To flesh out our understanding of where our crown jewels are. Um, and... Uh, because as you said, that's just, it's not sexy. It's a pain in the butt, um, but it is so important. And, uh, and I just, yeah, I think that's one of the many things that we as a profession need to take a little more seriously or a lot more seriously. That's a good point. Now, Jack, I'm curious, you know, someone that has been in the industry as long as you have, um, your co-founder, of a company in security and risk. Um, I'm just curious, you know, was there ever a point in your life before the current life you're in when you were younger, if, if, was there anything that struck personal to you that 
kind of gave you the passion that you have behind what you do today. Is there something that, uh, or, or did that kind of just come about once you got into, into this risk industry? No, I've always been wired in a certain way that this just is a really good fit for. So back way, way back, um, in the earliest days of my professional life, I, I had a degree in electronics and I loved working at component level analysis and troubleshooting and, and whatnot. Because when you're working at a component level, you know everything that's going on, you know, every signal, every volt, every ohm, you know, you know exactly what's going on there. And and then when I got into programming, I I loved working in assembly language programming because you had you knew exactly what was every single machine instruction was, you know, was something you explicitly dictated in your program. And then when I got into, um, into security, you know, my hobby became disassembling viruses. I wanted to know exactly how at an assembly language level, how they're functioning. And then when I got into risk, I just, I am driven to understand exactly how this problem works and how we manage it at, 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 at the most granular level I can practically achieve. Now, now let me, you know, uh, make sure everyone understands that I'm not advocating that everybody else operate at that level of abstraction. <laughs> My, my objective in, in gaining that understanding is then to boil it down, right? So that, and, and to abstract it at a, at a pragmatic level for people to operate with. But that, ha- that simplification has to come from a deeper understanding. When we, when we have simple solutions for things we don't understand, those are called guesses, right? right. And that's what, goes, that's what prevails in our industry today, you know, to be perfectly frank. And... And if we want to be way more effective, we have to first gain this deeper understanding, boil it up from that to something that, that is simpler, more pragmatic, but still stands up, right? That is based on this deeper understanding. Uh, I agree. So we're going to, before we move on to our, our fun segment, well, this is another segment that we have. It's called Fix Your Life. So you have Gabe and I here. We're, we're able to, uh, to help fix anything in your life, whether it be this could be a free therapy session, this could be um, something about <laughs> something about uh, something at the house you need help fixing. You don't have to hire a mechanic. Um, anything at all, uh, we'd love to to try to help if you have anything that comes to mind. I don't do windows though. Just <laughs> no windows. <laughs> no. We're having a house built. Do you? Um... What do you Those know? have windows, Jack. Those have windows. <laughs> <laughs> Both the operating system and the panes. <laughs> um, anything that comes to mind, though? Any questions that you have uh, for us? Anything that... Um... You know, just continue. I, I love the fact that you have this program and that you bring, you know, different points of view and perspectives on here and... and, and, and and it's that diversity of, of awareness and understanding and, and, and ideas that hopefully help our profession sort of evolve. Right? I'm a big believer in evolution as a as a as a method of of improving over time, and uh, and I just love the fact that you guys are doing what you're doing because I, th- I think it it's this kind of thing that that keeps us from being narrow-minded and keeps us from um, just not evolving. I agree. Got to have an open mind. You got to learn new things. You got to keep trying and, and just being building a community. That's, that's what we're all about. And I, if I've grown to learn that the privacy and security community is pretty tight. Everybody's really, really awesome um, and just wanting to help each other. And I, it's, it's very encouraging. So um, we're excited to, to continue this and really lucky to have someone like, like yourself on, Jack. So thank you for what you do and 
and for coming on. So let's, let's, let's have a little fun before we wrap it up. Not that, you know, we're always having fun here, yeah. as I say, <laughs> no, but uh, let's, let's go ahead and start off with an easy question. What I want to know what your biggest pet peeve is curious. Um, closed mindedness, you know, someone who won't entertain new ideas, won't, won't, uh, you know, I'm not even insisting on strong critical thinking because oh, that's not the bar anymore. Damn it. <laughs> I've, I've had to lower it. Um, but it's, it's just an openness to, to listening. I mean, really listening and, and entertaining ideas, but not just shutting them down out of the gate. That drives me nuts. What's been your favorite go-to snack uh, being stuck at home during the, the last year? Oh, gosh. Um, dark chocolate. It's a good one. A little natural cocoa and uh, caffeine in it or whatever. Yep. Can't go wrong with that. Mm. Sea salt, off we go. <laughs> a little sea salt, yeah. Is there a brand that you like specifically? Um, if it's If it's like 88% or higher dark chocolate, then I'm good regardless of brands. Okay. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern Arizona. If you've heard of Flagstaff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It gets hot in Arizona. (laughs) Nobody believes me when I tell them I grew up playing hockey outdoors in Northern Arizona. Really? You're right. Ice hockey. We're talking ice hockey. hockey. Our rink was outdoors and, um, and I remember playing hockey in 15 degrees below zero. Um, and, and we had my second year living there as a kid. We had over 200 inches of snow that year. Flagstaff is, is, is 6,300 feet elevation. And the winters are, at least when I grew up there, they were cold and snowy, but there was a lot of sunshine in between the, you know, you get um, a ton of snow. Yeah, it was, it was. I love the winters there. Yeah, never been out there. Um, well, I've been out to San, San Francisco, that's close enough, right? Yeah, it's a hike, it's no, okay, that's fair. Um, what were you like in high school? Were you uh, were you into sports? Were you uh, did you have some kind of clique that you were in, some kind of group of friends? No, not a click. I was a hockey player, um, and that was that was really about it. I mean, I wasn't in our school didn't have a hockey team. I wasn't in school sports. I, I just was attracted. I was a goaltender in hockey. I was a goalie, and um, and that's for whatever reason that's where my heart was, and, and that's that's what I did. What uh, this is? I guess this isn't really like you know, funny, but how would you like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered as, you know, uh, contributing, meaningfully contributing to our profession. You know, professional, you know, certainly in my personal life, I'd like to be remembered as, as, you know, a good husband and a good father and a decent human being. But professionally, I'd like to think that, that uh, if my name comes up, people are going, oh, yeah, he, yeah, he was worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all we could ask for, right? And and what what's your TP situation like at the house? Um, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you, well, I mean, do you uh, do you guys have it over or under? <laughs> no, we're, you know, we, we, you know, I did the risk analysis. <laughs> <laughs> did a cost did benefit math. on all that. Did the math. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we're, we're good. We're good. I think I think we got like sixty day supply. Okay. And do do you guys do you guys put it on over the top or is it under when you reach for it? It's important. So the toilet paper is it uh, is the roll on the top or is it yeah, on the yeah, bottom? Top, top, top. Okay. Okay. You're you're good. You're in the good. You're in the clear. Now I I, I grew up. I had it the other way because I had a cat that would unroll an entire roll of toilet paper <laughs> get it on top. Are you are you uh, into animals? Do you have animals right now? We don't right now. We had a. Uh, I grew up with cats, but I'm a dog lover as an adult. Um, we had our 
a German shepherd of 14 years die a year and a half ago. And still, uh-huh. so haven't, haven't, we will get another dog, but we don't have one now. Is indeed my favorite breed by far. She was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, we will close with that. And Jack, I, uh, I really appreciate again for your time, for your expertise, for your insight. And it's just awesome getting to, to talk with people like you in this industry and um, really, really appreciate you putting your input in. So thank you. Thank you. Jack, I really appreciate uh, having the opportunity here. And again, I uh, really appreciate what you guys are doing. So thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. I can't wait to see you again in person. One of these days, you know, post yeah, plague. Well, uh, Good, good, good to catch up in person. Until then, though, be well, stay safe. Okay. Tell, uh, tell Chad I said hello, and uh, <laughs> we'll talk yeah, soon. yeah, Jack, we'll uh, we'll share this on uh, LinkedIn. Is that one of the main social media? Do you use Twitter or anything else? Well, I'm on Twitter, but I I don't really use the Twitter. wrist. The wrist lens team does. So we'll we'll pull it on. We'll put it on sure. all the medias. Yeah. I'll tag all of them for sure. Okay. Awesome, Jack. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. All right, cheers. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week. And to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I know that there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then make maybe make some new friends along the way. Uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ, can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>